Hi everyone, I'm Pamelia Chia and you are listening to the Singapore Noodles Podcast, your go-to destination to learn about Singaporean food culture. Today I have on the show Surika Raghavan and Alia Ali, both of them are co-founders of Periok, which is a food website with a focus on Malaysian home cooking. When I first found out about Periok, I felt that its vision was very much aligned to what I wanted to achieve with Singapore noodles. And so I invited Surika and Alia on the show so that we can listen to their journey and also discuss some of the challenges that food content creators from our side of the world face. I came across sure. your platform from Sharifa Nadira, actually. So I was on a podcast oh. episode with her and uh, she was telling me about your platform and she was like, oh, do you know about Periok? And I was like, what is that? I've, I've never heard of, you know, this platform. Maybe because like Singaporeans, I mean, Singaporeans and Malaysians, you know, we are like, we don't know much about each other's food scene or like, you know, food culture. Um, so when I checked it out, I was like, oh my gosh, this is so interesting because it is so aligned in terms of what I want to achieve with Singapore noodles. And I feel that a lot of the goals and and um, the, the gaps in the market that we all perceive is pretty much the same. So I would love to find out from you guys, what exactly is Periok and what led to you founding this platform? Um... So, first of all, thank you so much for having us on. What is Furyoks and how did it come about? So, basically, um, uh, I, you, you must be aware of what happened with uh, Bon Appetit, which is a you know popular food website in America last year. So, they kind of blew up because um, some, some controversy around how they were treating their non-white staff. Um, and, you know, generally also that there was a lack of inspiring content, I think, coming out of Western media outlets. And then I had this idea, I guess. I mean, it was always sort of swimming around in my head. Um, and then I had this idea of coming up with a website that would be more representative of Malaysian cuisine and um, also be more diverse within Malaysian cuisine. So that's when I... I got introduced. Well, I, I already knew Alia actually before that. She was an acquaintance, but um, uh, we were sort of match made by one of our mutual friends, Ling. And we started talking and we realized that we were super aligned on what we both wanted to do. Um, and we thought, you know what, why are we depending so much on Western outlets to provide content that Malaysians want and I guess need? So that's when we started talking about the concept of Periok. And, you know, we also felt that it was important to angle it as a sort of archive as well, given that there's a lack of that in Malaysia about our food. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's how it came about. It's, it's, it's just a little bit over six months old now. You know, you talked about how we are filling a gap that uh, the Western food media has not gone before. But what about the local food media in Malaysia? How do you think Periok compares? That's a great question. I think um, that's kind of one of the also one of the one of the things that informed us also when trying to conceptualize Periok at the start was that a lot of food media in Malaysia, um, a lot of them are very established. Um, they tend to focus mainly on eating out and more around restaurants, around chef culture. Uh, which is which are not bad things. Obviously, they also need um, you know pl platforms, right, to to talk about. And I think there was a lack of 
there was a lack of content around the home cook, around people at home who are cooking. How were they cooking? What were they using to cook? Methods of cooking, whatever. And I think we're, if I'm not mistaken, the first one to really just prioritize the home cooking experience and the home cook.、Um, There are obviously food blogs, people who have recipe websites and things like that. For if if you want to refer to recipes to cook at home, but I think、um, still generally a lack of delving into、um, maybe the stories behind these recipes or the cultures that inform these recipes. So we're trying to have a combination of both. You know, a combination of hey, cook this fun recipe at home, but also hey, here's also a story that you can read about. Why this person's family? Why this recipe means so much to this person's family, or why it means so much to a culture, or or even sometimes more negatively, why this culture is facing challenges in continuing to make this recipe.、Mm. So you know, trying to look at it from various angles and go deeper into recipes and cooking. Yeah, I love that so much because I feel that there is so much context and so much history and so much culture behind our food that、um, I feel that Western media fails to recognize, and、uh, it's all these subtleties and nuances that only locals would know.、Um, so you know, recently on Bon Appetit, I've been seeing a lot of more diverse kind of recipes. I think they recently had a recipe for roti jala.、Um, So I was wondering, what do you think is? Yeah, <laughs> I saw that. I saw that. I'm yeah, googling it right now. I'm googling it right now. <laughs> yeah, so I was just wondering, what do you think are the benefits of、um, a Malaysian or Singaporean person documenting our own cuisines and our own food cultures? I guess maybe.、Uh, hopefully, it can equate to more. Southeast Asian representation, you know, as in voices directly from this region, and also, also, I, I, I mean, I'd like to also add that I think Southeast Asian communities in the diasporic community cook quite differently from the way Malaysians or or Singaporeans cook. Right,、um, we are informed also by what's around us, and and I think that 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 distinguish. It's 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 important to distinguish the different ways we cook. I mean, it's not a bad thing or a good thing. So, for example, my sister、um, lives in Berlin, and she cooks a lot of Malaysian food. But she has to sort of make do, right, with what she has over there. She might not be able to find things like gula melaka, so she has to, you know, make do with brown sugar, for instance. And it's, it's I think, different the way the recipes are written. It's to also suit what's around、mm. them.、Um, And what is more accessible to them, so maybe that's that's how we I think distinguish Perak is that we primarily are targeting people in Malaysia,、um, mm-hmm. and hopefully that that comes through. You know, hopefully that we can set ourselves apart from Western media outlets that way.、Mm. Yeah. So basically, so basically, we're shifting the gaze like away. Like it's not for the white gaze. It's not for a white audience. It's for our people for us to read, and we like 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 Sureka said. Not only do we not have to tell people to sub brown sugar for gula melaka, but we don't even have to explain what gula melaka is. We can just say gula melaka, and our readers would know. And if you don't know, then that's a different story. Yeah. 
I almost I almost said well too bad, but no 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 no. I I do care whether you know. I do care whether you know, but but the audience is not white. So so if you don't know what it is, you're probably not mm. from here. So yeah. would you say that your main target audience, the ones that you're trying to reach, are locals rather than you know foreigners? Yes. One hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. And also to Alia's points about so the Gula Malacca, right? The same thing we we use to in our sub editing and our language that we use. So even in English recipes, uh, English language recipes on our website, we don't italicize Malay words, um, and we don't italicize. Malay names of dishes because I think like that in itself sometimes um, can be I guess politicized like yeah, very you know, we, we think about the exactly we think about how the way Western media outlets um, italicize the foreign names of foods um, even though they may be you know widely eaten in their own countries mm. right so that's the decision that we came to is like we're not going to italicize any names of um, foods, no matter how quote unquote exotic they are, you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah. So, are there other examples of whitewashing our food that you have seen in Western food media? Uh, <laughs> Where do I begin? Uh... <laughs> I mean, there was that. Um, what was it? What was Roti Chennai? Uh, Asian croissant, flaky bread, flaky. <laughs> A croissant, flaky croissant, or yeah, something. Yeah. Oh god, <laughs> cry. But was it from a Western yeah. food media? I think it was a local, uh, like a Southeast Asian person who came up with that. No. Yeah, but see, probably for the white oh, gaze. Exactly, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and um, almost, almost always, if you read rendang that's written uh, a recipe for rendang that's written for for a Western audience, it's always some like oh, it's a curry, and I'm like. It is not a curry, friend. It is not. It is not. Yeah. What is a curry? Nobody knows. But it is not a rendang. Um, and the other example was that New York Times. Um, not sure if you read that story about um a review of Southeast Asian fruits. Oh, this was God. particularly in Thailand. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Came out last year, um, where this reporter went to review and taste. A bunch of Southeast Asian fruits, including like mangosteens and rambutan, and she equated rambutan to looking like a coronavirus. Oh my gosh, yeah. So just that. things like that. <laughs> and she said something <laughs> about mangosteen not being worth it or something, not being worth to eat. <laughs> and we're like, what? <laughs> Excuse me. Like, I'm not a big fan of fruits personally. I like I like my sugar synthetic, but I'm not gonna. Say, <laughs> I'm not gonna say that about something that so many people deeply love. Like that's yeah. just rude just speaking very frankly do you ever worry that you are locking foreigners out of this cuisine or this food culture by being so specific with your target audience that's a good question i think that i'm not sure if we're generally we're specifically locking them Mm. out mainly because they have a plethora of choices out there in the world anyway Mm. i mean it's always like food media has always primarily targeted white audiences anyway Mm. so you know i don't we're actually in the minority Mm. right so i think to lock them out is maybe a little bit strong Mm. um i don't think that they are in any way oppressed (laughs) at the moment so um no i don't think so i mean on the other hand if they do want to you know try malaysian recipes the way people in malaysia cook them 
obviously, you know, we're, you know, we would love to hear from them if they want to give us feedback or, or anything like that. For sure. Mm. Yeah. And I've had conversations with, like, I have a few Indonesian friends, for example. And when they find out about the website, they're like, this is so amazing. This is so great. This is a site where it has recipes, uh, it has ingredients I recognize. And they're our neighbors and they're, and they're, and, and, and we're for once not fighting about anything. And it's, it's so great. <laughs> like, yeah. You agree. You agree that we like the same food. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I want. I think it's great, you know, because you see that a lot of the the ingredients that we use in Malaysia and Singapore are actually used in all over Asia, actually. You know, like, for example, ginger flour that we have in Singapore and Malaysia, it's used in Japan, you know, and they call it miyoga or something. Um, oh, and, okay. and, you know, when I first found out about that, my mind was blown because you would never think that um, ginger flour would find an application in Japanese cuisine. Um, so what were some discoveries maybe some dishes or some ingredient discoveries that you have had along the way there's this there's this uh asam pedas kind of thing that's made with uh the seeds of a rubber tree and i'm just like this this my friend is the indi- like like the ingenuity of 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 our people like the seed of a rubber tree Come on, like nobody thought about that, right? And no, nobody, very few people give that a second thought. But there is a very specific community in a in a town in Pahang, and that that um, prepares this 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 seed, and then it goes into flavoring this asam pedas thing, and wow. so that's one. It's called asam rong. And let's see what else. Oh, uh, there was this, there was this Fuchao. Um, somebody in Cebu uh, contributed a Fuchao peanut cake recipe, right? And when when I opened it, I was like, oh, okay. And I was reading the list of ingredients, right? I'm like, okay, uh, um, peanuts, uh, powdered sugar, and then I see like fried onions, and I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> and it's apparently served at the end of super old school um, banquets. Mm-hmm. And the the interesting thing is, uh, our photographer is also from a Fuchao family, but her, her family, even her grandmother, didn't know about this peanut cake. Mm-hmm. So it was like, eh, wow, okay, so maybe their family came from like a different village, and this family came from like a different village. So even within the same like what you would think is the same cultural background you would have completely different experiences so what's interesting to me or what's new to me might be something that somebody else has been eating since they were a child so yeah Mm. and this peanut cake was like Alia, like when you were testing it, you were kind of confused, right? Because it was both sweet and savory. Yeah, I was so confused making it. I was like, I don't know about this. I was just kind of like, like, I mean, your listeners won't be able to see my hands right now, but I was just like, what is this? I don't know. But, but eating it, it was so good. Like, it was just like, it, it really, it was really right in the middle of like sweet and savory. Mm. And I, we were just snacking on it. Oh my gosh. Actually, it sounds amazing. Yeah. I've never had something like that. But I think the closest equivalent would be uh, Teochew Oni. Have you ever had yes. it? Yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The closest yes. would be Oni, yes. 
Sometimes they use the fried onion as a garnish and they fry the taro and the the onion oil. And I feel that that is something that's very unique about Chinese desserts, like this intermingling of the sweet and the savoury. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure. There's also a Malay kueh that's similar that has like fried onions on top. I forget the name right now. Right. Wow. What about you, Sereka? Did you have any like epiphanies while curating the stories? Not so much epiphanies, but I can speak briefly about um, about so a story that's going to come in in the next month, hopefully. Um, basically, it's 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 kind of opened my mind a little bit about the lack of representation of regional cuisine in Malaysia. So as, especially especially East Malaysian cuisine. I think when we talk about Malaysian cuisine, uh, people generally tend to straight away think about Malay Chinese Indian and those kind of national dishes like your roti chanai, nasi lemak, what's the uh, Chinese? Uh, Chak kway tiao, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I think that East Malaysian cuisine is not given the same Attention. importance and the same championing, right, as, as, as these other Malay Chinese Indian. And sometimes speaking to some of our contributors from... Um, from East Malaysia, specifically um, this one writer that we are currently working with from uh, Sarawak, he, you know, generally is frustrated with the lack of coverage in mainstream media about these foods. And sometimes that frustration, you know, forces him to have to repeat himself constantly. He's having to sort of continually educate people from West Malaysia about, listen, this is just the basics of our cuisine. Like You should know this by now. The same way we know the basics about you know, a Chinese person might know the basics about Indian cuisine because we eat that kind of food all the time. So just things like that, which I think has opened my eyes a little bit about how mainstream food media in West Malaysia has been so ignorant um, all, all this while. So that's that's been eye-opening for me. And also, I I mean, I am not I'm not a cook like Alia. I, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm still learning, you know. I, I, She's lying. I, She's I, great. I, I, I feel like I'm learning so much about the regional specificity within Malaysian cuisine. And that's been so great to learn, whether from Alia or whether from our contributors. You know, for example, this ayam asam rong, I had no idea mm. about the existence of this dish. Um, so just things like how Malay pahang food is so different from, you know, Malay kedah or whatever. We have like a thousand different laksas in Malaysia that I still don't know the, the different nuances between all of them. Mm. So just things like that. I'm still learning. And I think it just it just amazes me all the time. It never just, it never fails to amaze me. Mm. So you know you you clearly have so much pride, you know, when you talk about uh, the diversity of food and food culture in Malaysia. But were you always so passionate about it or was it something that you know, slowly grew when you were working on Periok? Or have you always been like really proud of your Malaysian identity? I have been reading cookbooks to sleep ever since I was a child. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 it's been like that my whole life. I've always been interested in food and not just eating or cooking it, but like it as a subject. So I look at something and I'm like, where, where is it from? Who grew it? What also grows in the same place? What time of the year does it grow? Like, does it have seasons? Like, oh, does anybody else eat this? Like, I've, I've, I've been like this since I was a child. So um, this is just kind of like 
the perfect playground for me, I guess. Mm. But you know, with all these cookbooks, are they primarily um, from the Western world, or have have your has your gaze been equally on both Asian and Western? Both, like worldwide, really. I'm interested in everything because I, well, I mean, this is this is obvious to many people, but but food tells so much of a place and a culture, and like, oh, the uh, when people say, for example, like Russian food, people think blinis and uh, caviar. I don't know. I don't think the no- the regular r- Russian person eats caviar, but that's beside the point. But as in it, it it tells this the story of what is um, maybe popular with the, with, with the culture or what the culture chooses to advertise about itself, so to speak, or um, what is available in the land where the, the culture originates from. So there's so much to be told just through a plate of food. And I've always been interested in that, whether it's from this region or elsewhere. I think similarly as well, like I'm definitely very interested in that intertwining of food and politics. I don't think that those two things can be separated. And I think it's a privilege, I think, to separate those things, especially in Malaysia, right? Where we are, you know, so many people are still hungry. So many people are living um, in, in anguish, especially now. So I think that it's impossible to separate those two things. But when it comes to personally, when it comes to my like, uh, food media consumption habits I think that um, I'm guilty of sort of pandering more to the west in terms of what I read uh, I I love reading food essays, food journalism so from your MFK Fisher those kinds of old food essays to more like newer food journalism I think I, I'm, I'm guilty of not <laughs> not focusing so much on Malaysian food journalism mainly because I feel there's still a lack of that exploration between food and political issues or other issues, right? Um, whereas I think food journalism in Malaysia tends to still focus more on the, oh, where, where is your best nasi lemak or, you know, yeah. <laughs> the hottest mm. new restaurants or whatever. So that's why I, I don't really focus so much on local food journalism. Mm. But, you know, I think there are a lot of food thinkers like Alia who are um, definitely, I think, more aware of of the relationship between food and politics and, and our land. So that's inspiring me. Um, and whether we're, we're proud to be Malaysians, definitely, for sure. I mean, we have some of the best food in the world, right, in this region. So for sure. You know, I feel that it's really amazing what you guys are doing. And I'm just curious about why do you think both of you have such different perspectives as opposed to like a lay Malaysian who you know only likes eating food but not so much you know understanding the context of a dish or really wanting to understand how a dish is made well um personally I think it's because oh I'm gonna get political for a second uh mostly because there are we have we literally have so many other things to worry about we are constantly worried about other things that when it comes to f- when it comes to things like food we just want the joy of eating it and we don't want to think beyond it like i already have to worry about a b c d whatever whatever like you really want me to worry about like the origins of the ingredients on my plate, like that's not gonna happen, Bob. Like, and I, and I can tell you that that happens for like ninety percent of the population because yeah, 
people have so much more to worry about. Yeah, that's a great point. That's yeah. a great point. And also, I think people like me and Alia, right? Like us, we're in the food community, we're in the food media community where we're constantly exposed to these sort of stories. Mm-hmm. And so I think we're definitely in the minority in that we cannot also expect other people to, you know, automatically want to be interested in this stuff. It's yeah. quite a niche area, right? Exactly. So that's also something that we're conscious about when we are writing and the language that we use and our content because we don't want to alienate, we don't want to be preaching to the choir, right? We don't want to alienate the majority of the population who A, might not be, might not be interested in this stuff and B, might not understand this stuff. So we want to make it as accessible and as, you know, like layman-ish as possible. Yeah. Um, mm. But, you know, also try and educate a little bit. Mm. Um, it's baby steps, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's like trying to get people to 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 be on the same level of nerdy as you about like your favorite hobby or whatever. It's <laughs> yeah. Like I can't expect everyone to be as interested in in me as like knitting. I don't knit, but that's an example. Like <laughs> yeah. yeah. Everybody yeah. everybody wears clothes, but am I going to get everybody interested in sewing? That's probably not going to happen. It's it's like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that's one of the reasons also we were pretty steadfast about having the site be bilingual because yeah. may, there's a chance that the majority of people who are not interested in this or don't understand these issues uh, maybe are not English, like uh, you know, English might not be their first language. Mm. So it's also a way to get some of these things more accessible to them. You know, we just want to mainly serve as, a, you know, as as an archive of some of the things that Malaysians cook at home. Um, and and also we want to stress that you know, preserving cultures in Malaysia doesn't mean that we are suggesting that there is only one definitive version of this culture. That that in itself can be quite damaging. Um, you know, food culture and experiences, they are so individual. So we don't want to be seen as painting with a broad brush also. Mm-hmm. And that's that's why we also, you know, stray away from using the words authentic, um, for, yeah. for instance, to describe our recipes. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, yes, I think this, whatever it is that we're doing, trying to preserve some culture and heritage is important, but it's not the primary, I think, motivation for why we're doing this. Um, Simply because culture and and culture changes um so quickly and culture is so varying so we want to also be aware of that you know we were talking about this question because uh the other day and there's there's yeah there's there's evolution of 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 authenticity what was authentic at one point Mm. is probably not authentic now and will might become authentic again in the future i don't know and it different things are authentic to different people so and heritage means so many things so yeah yeah Mm. i i just also want to uh so there's this quote from uh this food writer called bettina makalintal we reposted this on Barrett the other day so she's a food writer from munchies and i really i really like her work so she tweeted the other day um preserving food traditions and memories is extremely important but the tendency to see dishes as immutable and acceptable only in the way you've personally encountered them is frustrating and limiting. And I think that's a great point. And sometimes in, you know, in Malaysia, I'm not sure about Singapore, but in Malaysia, sometimes, you know, we, we do get, um, I mean, not so much with regards to Periyok, but more generally, people who, um, you know, sort of 
guard these recipes in a very fierce way. Um, whether it's whether this means that they don't want to share their recipes or whether they, they, they you know, this means that they think any small change to this recipe is so offensive to them. And I think that that is, can be so limiting to the growth of a cuisine. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's the opposite of what we want to do at Perio, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's it's fair that you don't want to share your recipes, that that it's a family secret or whatever. That's that's absolutely fair. But yeah, on the, on that point, what Sureka said, it's like, then how do you expect this to continue? How do you expect this to, to progress? It's absolutely fair that there are families who... who you know, fiercely guard their recipes, don't want to share anything. It's absolutely fair. Um, do what you want to do. What what I am, in my tiny, humble, personal opinion, is asking is then how then will this culture be preserved? Because there are people who die with the recipes. They don't even want to, like, teach their children. and And it's very, like... Then, then you just that then nobody mm. will know your chakwetia. That's it. Like that. That's it. <laughs> and I, I don't know. Some part of my brain is like, is like, sure, that's absolutely fair. But the other part of my brain is like, oh, yeah, so selfish. But <laughs> it's just, it's kind of like a balance <laughs> yeah. of that. Like, oh man, I don't know whether like I uh, agree to disagree. I guess. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean because I felt a lot of that i mean mm. i felt that way a lot because when i got married that was when my grandmother-in-law started sharing her recipes with me and uh she was like telling me don't <laughs> tell anyone you know don't teach anyone these recipes <laughs> this, this will be your rice bowl you know and i i think <laughs> it's, sure. it's a very traditional way of thinking um but it also lends weight to the recipes you know what i mean uh it makes you um, feel the preciousness of these family recipes. Um, yeah, so I'm still on the fence about about this. What about you, Sirika? Do you have any thoughts on, on this idea of heirloom recipes? I mean, I can sort of see where both sides are coming from. I also wonder what the argument is for someone of the older generation to preserve these recipes. Like, do they... Is the worry, is, is the worry that we're going to be... We're going to take this recipe and start selling like start making it and selling it to people. So, I mean, I guess then you could argue, like, is there a line there between also like cultural appropriation and like, I, I can see that angle as well. But um, yeah, to Alia's point, I think also maybe there is also a lack of awareness about how important it is to grow and and chart the growth of, of, of a cuisine. And so if, if a cuisine dies with, with someone, that is... To me, just a shame. It's such a shame if if people just like a handful of people are cooking these amazing recipes. I think that that's a shame. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel that um, in Singapore, one of the cuisines that is dying for sure is uh, Eurasian cuisine. Um, right. Just because there is. I I didn't want to say the name of the cuisine, but thank you for <laughs> saying it. <laughs> it's the same in Malaysia. Yes, there is like this fierce guardianship of it which is quite amusing yeah you, you'll never yeah. find a recipe for like a suji cake or something like, yeah oh, like, <laughs> please give us suji cake recipes guys yeah. <laughs> i mean if their concern is like like if the the malay phrase for it is air tangan like the 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 water from 
like from the hand, right? If the concern is that the eye tangan is different, like even between people of the same culture, it will taste different. Let alone like different, like like different cultures. So it's, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> But then, on the other hand, you have some communities like you know the Chetty Peranakan community, uh, which yes. is also yeah. you know obviously a dying community in terms of like you know they they would want their cultures to be preserved. Um, I I find that they are they are covered to some extent in the media more so than Eurasian communities, mm-hmm. and maybe it's because you know uh, you find that they are quite willing to go to the media and maybe share mm-hmm. sharing their recipes, um, provide people an insight into the way that they cook. Um, there was even in Singapore like a whole um, exhibition about um, Chetty Peranakan culture in Little India, which was amazing. So just things like that. I think that those things, uh, whatever art forms that they choose, are so important to to get people to continue talking. Or otherwise, your Chetty Peranakan recipe is not going to, you know, not going to get the same representation as your other majority cultures, right? Yeah, hmm. I think on your website I saw that you have this focus on championing or you know shining a light on uh, the indigenous communities in Malaysia, and given that a lot of the ingredients tends to be you know harder for the typical person in Malaysia or Singapore to find, um, how do you hope to establish some form of relevance um, to regular folk? We had a recipe uh, contributed for ikan ikan pai. Paihikan, and it's basically this uh, river fish um, wrapped in banana leaves, and then you kind of like um, kiap it. What's the what's the word for it in English? You kiap the thing <laughs> in like in like um, bamboo, and then you you grill it outside. But obviously, not everyone's gonna gonna go like cut down bamboo blah 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 so um i did the recipe for for the oven i did the recipe in a cast iron pan in the oven but any oven safe pan is fine so when when i test recipes that are um uh obscure with obscure ingredients let's say uh i try my best to present it in both ways in the way that the contributor intended, and also in a way that this is how you can make it at home. There are, of course, ex- uh, exceptions that, um, for, for example, there is a recipe for umbut sawit, masak belacan, and that is the heart of a palm oil tree. And other other than going on like your uh, other than going on facebook and asking if anybody has a palm oil tree to cut down <laughs> like it's very difficult to get a, that so you can so in that case all i all i could do was document it as is and maybe recommend that oh if you can get um the heart of a coconut tree that could also work but it'll be slightly sweeter but but the original recipe is this. So I try my best to adapt it. It doesn't it doesn't always it's not always possible to translate it, but I, I do my best to adapt it. And also to add mm. to that, uh just to bring up an example, right? Um, of this American writer and chef. Her name is Jenny Dorsey. She runs this um initiative called Studio Atau. 
I hope I'm pronouncing mm. that right. It's like a food think tank in America. So she uh, published a recipe on Serious Eats um, for chicken, uh, uh, Chinese herbal chicken soup using black chicken. And there was a series oh, yeah. of, um, you know, I guess you could say like more unusual and hard to find Chinese herbs. So you'd have to go to a specialty store to get them. And the comments under that story was, were pretty shocking. People like, um, mainly white people, right, who were, oh, you know, why would Serious Eats post a recipe like this? You know, half of the ingredients are unrecognizable and where would we get this? And how do you expect us to cook a recipe like this? You know, you want us to cook more Chinese food, but this is against what you're standing for, etc., etc. And Jenny Dorsey um, actually brought up a good point, right? She brought up, um, she, she basically argued that so much, so much of food content, uh, going back to our argument about the white gaze, right, is focused on relevance and convenience. But relevance and convenience to who? Who is it relevant and convenient yes. to? And who, exactly. who, 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 who actually owns the seat at this table? Who is at? Who, who is actually dictating what is relevant and what is convenient? So something like pai ikan might be an everyday dish for someone in a marginalized community. So like we, we're actually un, under, in a sense, it's sort of like, I think we have to also rethink how we position recipes to be, um, you know, relevant or accessible or convenient because we don't, also don't want to erase um, the cooking cultures of more marginalized communities, right? So when a chicken soup yeah. asks you to use all these different herbs, maybe it's worth seeking out and making it in the way that the author suggests you do before, mm. you know, criticizing and saying that. And I think that that's actually a really good point um, because I think sometimes we fail to see who exactly our audience is. You know, if, if we truly want to be inclusive, we mm. cannot be focusing mm. the West Malaysian majority supermarket going um crowd right yeah yeah because for all mm -hmm. this talk of inclusivity a lot of it talks um a, a, a lot of the work has been done in being inclusive uh having more inclusive content creators or having more inclusive like the people from like behind the camera in front of the camera whatever but there's not a lot of talk about the inclu inclusivity of the audience and that's exactly what mm. what jenny dorsey was saying like sure there's yeah. so many like contributors of color on on so many food media sites right now but so many of them are still writing for white people and it's yeah. really like okay this is not where it's supposed to go guys i mean i think we're, we're all for like cheats versions of of harder you know more laborious dishes i think that there's a value to that also but uh, but without dis discounting the more like quote unquote like original versions as well you know Mm. And yeah. also, like, is it so hard to get like Chinese herbs? Everything number one, everything is online these days. And number two, there is a Chinatown everywhere. That's why I love Chinese people. There's a Chinatown mm. everywhere. There is a medicine hall everywhere. <laughs> yeah, true. I have black chicken sitting in my freezer right now because we just I just had my second shot and I'm I'm gonna make like black chicken oh, herbal soup. Oh wow! But like, yeah, but mm. but like, it's just. It's not hard. You're just lazy. 
Yeah, and do you think that makes your job as a content creator or like a business owner difficult or challenging? Because I mean, from the perspective of a content creator, you want as many eyeballs to reach your content or you want your audience to have some form of connection with that piece of content. Um, so do you think that it's a difficult balancing act? That's a great question. And I think that that's also maybe uh, something that more inclusive food writers don't have the privilege to think about because they often have to answer to large media publication houses, right, who run an advertising. Um, so, you know, they have to appease investors and audiences and whatever. But for us, I think we're thankfully, you know, we're independent, we're self-funded. So at the moment, we don't have to worry about that stuff. Obviously, we want, you know, as many people as possible reading our content. But I think even moving forward, if we... You know, we are exploring monetization down the road. I don't think we would preferably not want to compromise th th these values that we have. And if, you know, for example, if someone comes in and says, why are you posting this sort of content? We're going to lose money. First of all, I think that's a myth. I don't think people actually lose interest the more um, in, in quote unquote, like inaccessible, irrelevant a piece of content is to their own personal experiences. I think actually like we... Like, you'd be surprised how many people want to read about things that other people are cooking or even if, if even if they're not going to exactly cook it. But it's just everyone's curious, right? And they, 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 love, they love to read about what, you know, their East Malaysian neighbours are cooking. And I think that we sometimes overestimate or, or rather underestimate the intelligence of our audiences or like we we tend to think that, oh, they only want like super easy recipes or like they only want like things that are super familiar to them. Not necessarily all the time, I think. So, mm. but yeah, I think to your point, like we are lucky at the moment because we're independent. So we don't have to answer to anyone, but I can see why that would be a challenge for maybe more mainstream media. Um, and that's hard. I think that's a, 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 a delicate line, right? To sort of balance. Mm. Are yeah. Anything? Um, she said everything I wanted to say. <laughs> we, we we share one brain cell. So like. <laughs> you guys are so in sync. Um, I'm so JC. I'm JC. She's Justin. <laughs> oh my gosh. I'm Lance <laughs> Alia. Don't speak for me. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, but I'm JC. I'm definitely JC. Oh my gosh. So are you guys doing this full-time or is it um, like a um, site, site project, um, site hustle for uh, site hustle thing? Uh, well, this doesn't pay the rent. I can see that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because we haven't, we haven't um, gone fully into monetizing yet and we're kind of like funding this ourselves. So um, uh, this is for sure definitely sure a side project for now it would be great if this could be my full-time but that'd be a while yeah same with mm. me i have a full-time job i'm actually based in singapore um so i have a full-time job oh. <laughs> but uh but yeah no this this is a side hustle so it's uh we we we're not we don't have the capacity of like a full-blown media publication so that's why we don't have in terms of volume of content we're not super, you know, we're not as as, as mm. good as the other, other you know, Malaysian mainstream media publications. But we try, we try. It's hard, you know, it's hard. Yeah, yeah. oh, that's Especially with, like, just a two, just a two-person team and then, like, 
um, day jobs and mental health yeah. and like just like running our own households. It's just it's a lot. Yeah. So. <laughs> Yeah, it's shocking. I thought you guys were doing it full time because everything looks so. Oh, quality. thank you, <laughs> thank you. We took months. It took months to get there. It's beautiful. I mean, the site and the the way you guys categorize your recipes according to ingredients, the cuisines. I thought it was great, and the fact that you guys even pay your contributors or you know try to highlight. Um, people from these communities. I think it's so great. I have one last question for you guys, and that is, what is your dream? for Pariok and what you hope to achieve through it? I would love to take it like beyond the website. Like I would love to have a YouTube channel, cooking classes. I mean, I already do um, one-off cooking classes once in a while. I would love to have discussion panels, foraging sessions. Uh, one of my biggest um, dreams is to have like extensive like ethnographic uh, research trips so really spend time in different communities and places and like stay there for a couple of weeks and just really like talk to people and see what they eat and just live in their place and just live as them and like it's to see what they eat yeah like i that to me is the best way to really see how people eat so just live next to them continuously day by day yeah mm. that's a dream of mine i think for me similarly to alia uh, mainly just more yeah you know maybe diversify the format a little bit more videos uh more diverse content and i guess also at the end of the day um more money <laughs> i mean yeah, like we want yes. we want to be sustainable you know at the end of the day and i, I this i think continually putting out content uh without any money coming in i think it's not going to be sustainable for us so so yeah hopefully yeah. more you know monetization down the road yeah i really love your honesty i was listening to another podcast that that you guys did as well and you guys mentioned money as well <laughs> and i feel that <laughs> but i feel that that's something that content creators struggle with right i mean everyone is expecting free content all the time um, and yet there's so much effort that goes into uh, paying contributors, testing recipes, buying ingredients for your recipes and just, you know, tweaking recipes here and there. Um, so, yeah, I think that's definitely going to be an uphill struggle for, for a lot of people as we go into, you know, a more content heavy era where everyone is now a content creator and putting out recipes, especially with COVID. Yeah. Don't you think? Oh yeah, exactly, sure. exactly. People, people, I don't think people understand the amount of effort, time, and money that goes into creating food content. I mean, you would know, right, Pamela? I mean, you have you've got great recipes on the site, and I'm sure you spend so much time like researching, and then you have to measure and take notes and this and that. And we have to buy, you know, we need money for our ingredients, and even our stories, like you know, it goes through a pretty like rigorous editing process, and it's this is all time and. Yeah, yeah, but I'm so glad that I found Periok as a resource. I think it's fantastic what you guys are doing and, you know, the investment of your time and your energy and your passion. And I, I really, you know, do hope that you guys will keep this going and that you will find a way to be sustainable. Thank you. Thank you so much. We are fans of your work too. Thank yeah. you so much. That means a lot. That wraps up another episode of the Singapore Noodles podcast. You have been listening to Surika Raghavan and Alia Ali, co-founders of Periok. 
Also, for those of you who don't know, the Hungry Ghost Festival edition of Seasonings magazine is out. It is available for purchase on seasoningsmag.com and also at Kinokiniya. And we also offer digital copies and ship worldwide for those of you who live overseas. As you heard in this episode, creating meaningful food content can be a time, labor, and cost-intensive one. So every purchase of an online class on the Singapore Noodles website or Seasonings magazine goes a long way in making Singapore Noodles a more sustainable platform. Once again, thank you all for listening to the podcast and I'll catch you all next week.